0: Hey, good morning Coastal Church, Pastor Sean here. So great to see you. Thank you for letting me interrupt your service. Uh, This summer, we're gonna be doing a great series, First John, so that you may know. And what is it that we want you to know? Well, First John teaches us the objective truth of Jesus Christ. The apostle John tells us that he was a part of Jesus's ministry. He saw him here on earth. He heard him teach, he saw him bodily rise from the grave. And, and so our faith is objectively true, but he also teaches us that since it's objective is true, Christ is in us it's subjectively true as well that Jesus transforms us from the inside out so that if we love God we're gonna love others if we love God as he is light we're gonna walk in the light and it's gonna encourage us and to walk in holiness and righteousness so really really excited about this summer series and uh, we do these summer series through the books of the Bible so that while you're on vacation you can tune in you don't want to miss a week and so I know a lot of you are gonna be vacation this summer hope you have a great time of rest with your family and things like that but don't miss a week of Coastal Church so We're really excited for you to join us this summer in our new series First 1 John. Have a great Sunday. I want to turn it back over to your campus pastor. God bless you.
1: Grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. If you're looking for it and you hit 2 John, you've gone too far. So 1 John, uh, starting a new sermon series, and we have entitled this series, That You May Know. And that's a phrase that we're going to read time and time again as we go through this letter. John is writing that we may know certain things. And as Pastor Sean already mentioned in the intro video, that we may know, first of all, that our faith is objectively true, meaning that it is true in time and in history, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really did die for our sins, that he really did rise from the grave. But it is also subjectively true. That is, as a result of what Christ has done and me trusting in him, now Christ lives in me by the power of the Spirit, that he really is transforming my life, and I really am being conformed to the image of Christ. It is both objectively and subjectively true. And this book is written that we would know that, that we would have confidence and assurance of the things that we know in Scripture. And here's why I think that this theme has such an appeal to us. As human beings, we have a natural desire for certainty. We have a natural desire to know things for sure, or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm projecting my own, you know, weirdness on everyone else. Let me just have a little bit of a confession time. Uh, There's certain things that if I don't know it for sure, it will drive me nuts. Uh, Things like, did I lock the door? Uh, Everybody else, everybody laying in bed at night, like, did I lock the door? And you have to get out of bed and go check it. I've actually been working here, gone home, and then be like, did I lock the door at church? And so guess what I got to do? Get in my car, drive back, did I lock the door? Or maybe it might be things like, did I turn the stove off? Anybody else have that miserable drive to work where you're like, did I turn the stove off? And then just get these images in your head of your house burning down. Some of you guys are like, Nate, you need to go talk to somebody. You're probably right. But here's the bottom line. It drives us crazy when we don't know things for sure. And if that's true with trivial things like, did I lock the door or did I turn the stove off or whatever else it might be, how much more important is it that we are sure about our faith in Christ? that we are sure, both objectively and subjectively, that God really did send his son into this world to rescue us and that he really is in me, that our faith is genuine. You see, friends, there's one thing that all of us in this room have in common, and it's this. Unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die one day. I know it's a cheery thought to start this sermon off, but listen, why do I say that? Because how foolish would it be to go through life knowing for certain that something is coming, but not being prepared? not knowing for certain that your faith in Christ is something that is genuine. So John wrote this book so that we may know the gospel, that we may know that we have eternal life. So it's my hope and prayer that this summer we will grow deeper in our knowledge of the truth, we will grow deeper in our commitment to follow Jesus, and we will grow in our love for God and one another. So we're going to study the first four verses this morning, and here's the main point. The word of life was revealed in time and declared by eyewitnesses. And through Jesus, we have joyful fellowship with God. So let's read these first four verses of 1 John together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would bless the preaching of your holy and inspired word. Lord, we acknowledge that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and I pray that you would use this word to comfort, to challenge, to encourage, to convict. We pray that your Holy Spirit would use this book of 1 John this summer to conform us more deeply into the image of your Son. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're actually going to pivot here. And for the first 20 minutes, we're actually not going to study those verses at all. So, um, you know, faked you out. So here's what we're going to do. I think it's helpful when you're studying a book of the Bible to look at the book as a whole to get the big picture before you look at the individual verses. So how many puzzle people do I have in here? How many of y'all like to do puzzles? Some of y'all. Okay, great. Try doing a 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle without the picture. See how well that goes for you. You'll be looking at these pieces. You'll be all kinds of lost because you need to see the big picture. In the same way, I'm convinced that when we study the Bible, part of the reason why we often get confused is because we're trying to put together all these verses that are like puzzle pieces without looking at the big picture. And so I think it's helpful for us to spend the first part of a sermon on the first sermon in 1 John to look at the picture of 1 John, to look at the whole thing to get the big picture in mind before we start looking at the puzzle pieces. So that's the goal. Let's start with an introduction to 1 John. Let's start with an introduction to 1 John. Now, this is a well-loved book of the Bible. Many of you guys have already read this. You already know it. You already love it. It's a very incredible book of the Bible because it is simple and yet profound. That's sort of the hallmark of John's writings in general, the Gospel of John, 1 John. They're very simple to understand and that many of the concepts can be understood by children, but they also have a great depth to them that can pr- may be profound even to those who've been studying Scripture their whole lives. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one, yet the words are inexpressible. So let's look at the details together. Let's talk first about the author. The author of this book is the Apostle John. The Apostle John. And now, that is not actually patently obvious when you look at the book because the author never comes out and identifies himself, right? In Paul's letters, he usually starts with, with, you know, sup guys, I'm Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, uh, and he does all of that. But the Apostle John didn't have time for any of that. He goes right into it just jumps right in with the book. He doesn't do greetings, doesn't introduce himself, doesn't do, I hope everything's going well with you guys. He just launches right into it in this book. So how do we know that John wrote it? Well, until the rise of higher criticism and the Enlightenment, the church was unanimous through all of church history that this was written by the apostle John. And even better than that, read First John and the Gospel of John back to back. It becomes patently obvious that the same person wrote them. And I'm gonna bring some of that out in the paragraph we're gonna study this morning. So the Apostle John wrote this letter. Let's talk a little bit about him. So John was a disciple of John the Baptist, along with his brother James, before coming to faith in Jesus. He lived the longest out of all of the 12. In fact, he lived to the mid to late 90s AD. So let's do a little bit of math. Jesus is like 30 AD. He lived to the mid to late 90s AD. So unless he had one of those like Old Testament lifespans, he was probably a very young man during Jesus's ministry, probably like a teenager or early 20s, a very young man. He is known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself in the gospel of John. And many of you have probably heard him referred to as the beloved disciple, the disciple of love, because he's always talking about loving God and loving one another. And that's great, but that doesn't match the portrait that we see of him as a young man. This is what's interesting. Let's read about the disciple of love in Luke chapter 9. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, same John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? As if they could do that. So he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. So think about it. The disciple of love is saying, Lord, this village was not hospitable. There wasn't any room in the inn. Let's give them the Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. Let's just rain down fire from heaven on them. Uh, Which if anything, this shows us that if this is how he was as a young man, and then he becomes the disciple of love, isn't that just one more reminder of the power of the gospel? That Jesus can change people so John goes on to become a key leader in the early church. He wrote 5 books of the New Testament, including the Gospel of John, the 3 letters of John, and the book of Revelation. He was the only disciple that was not martyred for his faith. He got off easy. All that happened to him was getting boiled in oil and then exiled to an island called Patmos. So this is the author who wrote this book, I think late in his life, probably in the 80s to 90s AD. So that's the author. What about the situation? You see, because authors of Scripture, I don't want you to get the impression, they didn't just sit down one day like, I want to write a book of the Bible today. That's what I'm going to do. No, these books were written in specific contexts, in specific situations, for specific purposes. So what's the situation that prompted him to write 1 John? I think he was confronting false teaching. He was confronting false teaching. I think that there's actually a circle of churches, more than one, that John was caring for as an apostle, and these churches were being troubled by false teaching. And I believe in doing so, in writing this letter to confront this false teaching, he was fulfilling the calling that all church leaders have of Titus 1.9, which says, "...he must be, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine," and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Calvin put it this way, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves. Both. It's instructing in sound doctrine and confronting or rebuking those who contradict it. John knew that as a, as a church leader is called to feed the sheep, one of the things that is entailed in feeding the sheep is preventing them from eating poison. And that's what false teaching is to the life of a church. But what was this false teaching that was being propagated in the church? We get some clues through the rest of 1 John and even in 2 John. 1 John 4 says this By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, if you have your Bible open, underline that phrase, in the flesh. That's really important. Has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. If you flip over a page to 2 John, his second letter, this is what he writes in verse 7 of 2 John For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, there it is again, in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what's the deal here? This is a denial of the humanity of Jesus. These false teachers are not denying the deity of Christ necessarily. They're denying the humanity of Christ. They're denying that Jesus has come into this world in the flesh. Every Christmas time, right? We talk about the incarnation, the virgin birth, about how Jesus is God, but he entered into this world taking on humanity. That's what they're denying. And you probably hear that and go, that's stupid. Why would you deny the humanity part? I think we do that because in our culture, that's the easy part. We have no problem affirming that Jesus was a human being. We struggle with the deity part. We struggle with the Jesus is God part. But in this culture, it would have been the opposite. Why is that? Well, according to a Greek worldview, matter or the physical world was viewed as inferior or evil, whereas the spiritual world was viewed as superior and good and pure. So according to that way of thinking, it would have been unbecoming for God to take on human flesh. Especially since that's the thing you're trying to get rid of. In a Greek scheme of salvation, you wanted to escape the body and get to a spiritual realm. The body was viewed as bad. This was a heresy called docetism, where Jesus was not literally a man, but he only appeared to be a man, like a ghost or an angel or something. Like, he just appeared to be a man. He was not actually a man. And this is a heresy because the humanity of Jesus is central to the gospel, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes. So that's the situation. So what was the purpose for his readers? He was doing this, I think, to provide assurance of salvation. I think this is the big theme of this book, that you may know that you have eternal life, assurance of salvation. Reading between the lines, these false teachers left the church— And this likely upset the faith of many within the church. So I think John is writing to provide assurance to the true believers in the church to show them how a person can know that they are genuinely saved. I think of a a theme verse of this book as 1 John 5.13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. It's the title of our sermon series. That you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing that we may know to provide assurance. And according to Alistair Begg, John provides three tests that we can use that we may know that we have eternal life. I'm going to refer to these again and again throughout this sermon series. I thought this was so helpful. Three tests that we can use that John gives us that we may know that we have eternal life. The first is what we could call the theological test. A theological test. Genuine Christians believe the truth about the gospel, believe the truth about who Jesus is, believe the truth about what he has done. As we've seen, those who deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, he says, are the very spirit of Antichrist. But then there's the moral test, the second one, that genuine Christians' lives have been so transformed by the gospel that they will begin to walk in obedience to the Lord. But even here, there's this tension in 1 John. I want you to feel with me. So next week, Pastor Andrew is going to come. He's going to preach to us the rest of chapter 1. And in 1 John 1.8, it says, anyone who says that they have no sin is a liar. So if we say we're perfect, we're lying. It's not that we're saying we're perfect. But then in the very next chapter, chapter two, it says, if anyone says I know him but doesn't follow his commandments, he's a liar. He's calling a lot of people liars. But here's the deal. This is the tension. If we say we're perfect, we're lying. If we say we're Christians and we're walking in sin, we're lying. How do you put those two puzzle pieces together? How do you manage that tension? Here's how. A genuine Christian still struggles with sin, but they do not live a lifestyle that is dominated by sin. We repeat that. A genuine Christian will still struggle with sin, but they will not live a lifestyle that is dominated by sin. I like to use this little phrase from time to time in my preaching. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. What is the direction of your life? Are you moving progressively more and more toward Christ? Are you growing in your obedience? Are you growing in holiness? That's the moral test. But third is the social test. Genuine Christians love others. John gives us one more liar in 1 John 4. He said, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. Whoever cannot love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. Our faith in Christ will overflow in love for other people. These are the three tests. Let me put it in these terms. Genuine Christians believe the truth about God and about the gospel. Genuine Christians' lives have been changed so that they're starting to grow in holiness and righteousness. And genuine Christians love other people. These are the tests that John expected his audience to use to determine whether their faith was genuine. And I think that we ought to do the same thing today. Guys, I think the doctrine of assurance is so important for Christians today because there's a couple of ways that we can go wrong with the doctrine of assurance. And I've seen it wreak havoc in people's spiritual lives. One way that we can go wrong with the doctrine of assurance is this. We can believe that we are saved and we are but we can struggle with believing that we are, right? We can be saved, but struggle with believing that we are saved. Some people genuinely are Christians. They've been born again. They have eternal life, but they struggle with feelings of doubt and insecurity about their salvation. When they sin, when they mess up, whenever they start to have intellectual doubts, they'll begin to wonder if they really are saved, And I think what we can do in these circumstances is use these tests that John gives us to reassure our hearts that we really are, that we're not perfect, we're we're following Christ. We're following after Christ. You know I love this book. I brought it in earlier, and somebody read the title and was like, "What?" And I do that. He did that on purpose. It has a very inflammatory title. This is a book by J.D. Greer called "Stop Asking Jesus into Your Heart." And a lot of you guys read the title of this book. You're like, Pastor Nate, what on earth are you reading around here? My goodness. Uh, let me explain. Uh, When you read the first part of the book, J.D. Greer explains in his testimony that as a young man, he really struggled with assurance of salvation. And every time there was an altar call, he's like, well, it wouldn't hurt to do it one more time. Just just to be sure. He ended up getting baptized like four times. Because he's like, I just, I don't know what it took last time. And I sinned and I messed up. So how do I know that my faith is real? How do I know that it's genuine? And I think that we laugh because it's true. Because that's been a lot of us. We can struggle to know whether our faith is real and whether it's genuine. And if that's you, let me lovingly suggest to you, perhaps these tests from the Apostle John can be a way to bring comfort where you can see, I really am following after Christ. But even more than that, let me assure you of this, that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, Jesus And the question is not, did I do everything right? Did I follow all of the right steps? Am I doing everything perfectly? Our assurance comes from resting in Christ, from trusting in Him. But there's another way that we can get assurance wrong, and I think this one's even more dangerous. If the first group of people are those who are saved but struggle with believing it, there's another group of people who can think that they are saved but they're not. That's even more dangerous. That's self deception. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, there are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord. And what is Jesus going to say back? I never knew you. It is quite possible to believe that we are saved, but we're not. And in these circumstances, these same tests from John, right? Do I believe the truth? Am I walking in holiness? And um, am I loving other people? Can be used as a wake up call. Because if a person would honestly examine their life, they might come to the conclusion, you know, I really don't believe the truth of the word of God. If I'm being honest, my life looks no different from the rest of the world around me. If I'm being honest, I live more for myself than for loving and serving other people. And those tests can be a wake-up call. My heart through this sermon series is that wherever you are on that spectrum— that all of us would have eternal life through Christ and that we would grow in our assurance. We would grow in knowing that. And I pray that in all three of these areas, our knowledge of the truth, our love for others, and our progression and holiness, that these are all things that we would seek to grow in as followers of Christ as we study this letter this summer. So how about this? Now that we're 25 minutes into the sermon, how about we get to the Bible? All right, sound good? All right, let's jump in. This is the word of life. This is what this is about. This passage is about Jesus. This passage calls him the word of life. Let's recap because I know you already forgot it. It's been so long since I read it. Verse 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life which was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us these first two verses he is describing to us who Jesus is he starts by telling us that Jesus was from the beginning Jesus was from the beginning. You guys that have read your Bible before, what does that remind you of? How about Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is saying, hey, you remember that whole creation thing? Jesus was there. He said the same thing in John 1.1. He began his gospel in much the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I think we can learn three things here. First of all, we learn that Jesus really is God. That Jesus is God. John tells us the Word was God and he was with God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Jesus is God. But it also teaches us that Jesus is eternal, right? If he is from the beginning, that means he preceded the beginning. He was there when the beginning happened. And that's hard to even kind of get our heads around. He was there when there was no such thing as time. He is eternal, he is from the beginning. Guys, this is essential to our understanding of who Jesus is, that he is eternal. But lastly, that he is the creator. Jesus was actively involved in creation. John tells us that without him was not anything made that was made, that all things were made through him. That Jesus is God, the everlasting God, the creator of the universe. But John goes on to tell us that Jesus was revealed in time. He was revealed in time. He says that he was made manifest to us. He was with the Father, made manifest to us. The life, the word of life, that was made manifest. It's similar to what he says in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, this is what the false teachers were denying. They were denying that he had come in the flesh. This is why, I love this, that John goes through in verse 1 right out of the gate. Like, what's the first thing he says when he starts this letter? We saw him. We heard him. We touched him with our hands. Why go to those lengths to say we are eyewitnesses of this? that this is real, that he did not just appear, but he really was a human being. We heard him. We heard his teaching. We had conversations with him. They say we saw him with our eyes. The apostles were eyewitnesses to his miracles, his transfiguration, his death, the appearances after his resurrection, and maybe some skeptics at this point went, okay, well, I've watched enough of those cheesy TV shows to know that you can see ghosts. You can hear them. That doesn't mean he was literally a human being. Well, here's the trump card. We touched him with our hands. The gospels go to great lengths to show this in really amusing ways. So Luke, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he shows up and he goes, guys, I'm hungry. It's been three days. Do y'all have anything to eat? And they give him some fish and he eats it right in front of them. Later in John, the same thing. He likes fish. They had a fish fry right there. But then even here's the kicker, John 20, 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I think even in the gospels, they're going to such lengths to emphasize this because they knew that this false teaching was around. They had to emphasize, no, he really did come in the flesh. And let me suggest to you, this is why this is so important. The person of Christ is that he is both God and man in one person, two natures, one person. That is the foundation of the gospel. It is the foundation of the gospel. Let me be even more blunt and explicit. Without either of those, the deity or the humanity of Christ, we lose the gospel. We lose Christianity. He must be both God and man because only God could save us. But only a man should represent us. Only a man should represent us in his life of representative obedience and in his substitutionary death on our behalf. We must affirm and praise the God-man, Jesus Christ, the word of life. But John is now going to transition in this opening paragraph to show us the results of the word proclaimed. By the word, I mean Jesus The word of life, the word that was made flesh. What are the results of Jesus being proclaimed? Let's look at verses three and four. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete." The first result of the word proclaimed is fellowship. It's fellowship. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship With us, This idea of fellowship. You know, I grew up in a church tradition where fellowship is what you did after church, right? We had a separate building, a, a room in the building called the fellowship hall. That's where it happened. And you guys know, you get the casseroles, you get the pie, you get the fried chicken, you get all of that. And so fellowship just meant hanging out and eating a lot of calories. That's what fellowship was. And now listen, that can certainly be involved in fellowship, but that is not all that fellowship is. The word fellowship in the Bible talks about having things in common, about having something shared with another person. It's about having the same mindset, the same perspective, the same confession, the same mission. It's about intimately sharing our lives together, loving and serving one another in profound ways. And I think the nuance in this text is shared mission. Shared proclamation of the gospel. We proclaim this to you so that you can have fellowship with us, John says. It's that we are together, united in our mission. It's a gospel partnership. But I want you to notice something that really struck me as I studied verse 3. Think about it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. In other words, it is the proclamation of the gospel that makes fellowship possible. This fellowship, again, it's more than a casserole. It is grounded in the gospel. And without the gospel, there can be no fellowship. Here's why that matters. The fellowship that we have in the church is built on the foundation of the truth of the gospel. Let me be even more explicit. There are a lot of people who talk about unity. And listen, guys, does God care about unity? Absolutely. Jesus prayed that the church would be one. Unity is very important. But here's the deal Unity can never be sought at the expense of gospel. Unity can never be sought at the expense of truth. Unity, I would go as far as to say that unity without truth, unity without gospel is dangerous. It's the very unity of hell itself. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. God gives the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. People are like, nah, we're good. Instead, we're going to build this big old tower. We're going to all come together, and we're going to do this whole thing on our own. We're going to make a name for ourselves. How does God respond? He looked at their unity, and he hated it. So he actively worked to undermine their unity by confusing their languages— so that they could no longer communicate, so that they could no longer be unified. We need to make sure that when we talk about unity, what are we talking about being unified in and for? This is a gospel unity. And there are many people today who will tell you, listen, like doctrine divides. You know, theology doesn't matter. We don't need to worry about all this stuff. Why are you so spun up about the person of Christ being God and man and all this stuff? We just need to be unified. Listen, friends, Unity must be a gospel unity or we lose any reason to be unified in the first place. This is unity in the gospel, partnership in the gospel. But once we have that, once we have this fellowship, friends, there's nothing sweeter than having fellowship in the church in the gospel. Nothing. Nothing that brings more joy, as we're going to see in verse 4, because this fellowship, it's not just with the church, it's with God himself. He says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that we're invited into this intimate relationship with God himself and where God makes us partners in his rescue mission of bringing the gospel to the world. This shared mission, this gospel proclamation is something that we are invited into. I like to put it this way. God brings us to work. That's what evangelism is. Start proclaiming the gospel is. God brings us to work. Because I hope you—I really hope you guys know something. Does God need us to accomplish the Great Commission? Nope. You ever seen the Avengers? Well, if you haven't, I'm going to spoil it. So Thanos just goes like that, and half of all the people go away. In the same way, God could just go like that and accomplish the Great Commission if he wanted to. Does he need us? No. But he brings us to work. I was reminded of this last Saturday. A lot of you guys were at the church work day. We were down there digging holes. We implanting planting plants. We were having a great time. And uh, Megan was out of town, so I brought my girls with me. Huge shout out to Bethany because we probably would have left after 30 minutes if Bethany wasn't helping uh, with the girls. But anyway, we're there, and eventually they start helping digging some holes helping. Uh, and so we got them these little shovels. They're three and two, if you don't know. And so they're digging these holes and they're having a great time. And I look over and at one point, Hannah's even like, you know, digging and like dumping dirt back in the hole that's already been dug. Uh, so, you know, she, she's digging a hole and filling it back in. She's probably gonna work for the government one day. But so she's, um, so anyway, here's my point here. Was, were they being supremely helpful in getting the job done? No. In fact, at some points they were making it harder. But I was so delighted to see them there they were having a blast. You know, there's one kid running around with a snake and they're chasing each other with snakes and frogs and all this stuff. They're having a great time. And it brought joy to my heart to see them there, not because of how productive they're being, but because they're there. And sometimes I think God looks at our attempts at ministry and evangelism and preaching and all these things. And it's like, I think I'm doing these great things for God. And really, I'm just throwing dirt back in the hole sometimes and not being supremely productive. But here's the deal. God brings us to work. That's what this fellowship is. He brings us to work. He j- brings us into his mission of changing the world and proclaiming the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. So, the first result of the word proclaimed is fellowship, partnering with God and the church in this gospel proclamation. The final result is complete joy. Complete joy. Verse 4 And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete so that our joy may be complete. It brings joy to his heart to know that the church is walking in the truth. He says something very similar in 3 John. 3 John verses 3 and 4 say, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. One commentator wrote, John has the heart of a pastor, which cannot be completely happy as long as some of those for whom he feels responsible are not experiencing the full blessings of the gospel. What brought him joy was this church walking in the truth. And I hope you know that joy is more powerful than happiness. Happiness is about circumstances. And when things are going well, happiness goes up here. When things are going bad, happiness comes down here. But joy in Christ is a contentment that is grounded in the character and promises of God. And therefore, no matter what's happening on the roller coaster of life, whether we're in a high or in a low, we can be content. We can have joy. We can have peace. Not because of what's going on around us, but because of who God is and what he has done for us. So let me leave you with a few takeaways this morning as we close. I hope I've convinced you, first of all, to read and to reread, and then maybe read one more time First John this summer. I think one of the best ways to study a book of the Bible is just to saturate yourself in it. Read it over and over until you start to memorize parts of it, until it starts to become part of your DNA. And it's not like I'm asking you guys to read Wayne Grudem or something, okay? This is 15 minutes to read through 1 John. You can read it several times. You could read it every day if you wanted to. It takes 15 minutes to read through 1 John. I'd encourage you, as you read, memorize key verses. Meditate on those verses. Let it become a part of your thinking. The next takeaway is this. Worship the word of life. Jesus Christ. I don't think there is any better response to what we've studied this morning than worship. Because look at who he is. He is. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of all things. He is the word of life. He is the everlasting God who came into this world to rescue us. The only proper response to who Jesus is is worship. And worship is so much more than a song. It's so much more than a service. It's our way of life as we offer our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. So every moment of every day, live it in light of who Jesus is and let it be an act of worship to the word of life. Final thought, and with this, I'd like to invite up both our worship and our prayer teams. My last thought is this. Rejoice in knowing him. Rejoice in knowing him. John wrote these things so that our joy may be complete. This complete joy comes from having fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It comes from knowing God so that you may know that you have eternal life. As I've already mentioned, joy is not grounded in the circumstances or in the roller coaster of this life. But man, far too often we're riding that roller coaster because that's where we're looking for joy. We're looking for joy in our career or in our relationships or in whatever else it might be. And I'm here to tell you that until you learn to find your joy in Christ, you're going to be on that roller coaster, riding the highs and the lows of life. Let me encourage you to instead find your joy, find your complete joy in who Christ is and what he has done for you. And it's my hope That man, as we study this letter this summer, that God would use 1 John to deepen us and deepen our faith in the three areas that we've mentioned. That we would grow in our knowledge of the truth. That we would grow in our obedience to Christ. And that we would grow in our love for one another. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the word of life, the word that was made manifest to us for our salvation. We praise you, we love you, and we thank you. Use your word to conform us to your image and deepen our assurance and our confidence in who you are. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.